Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is episode 22. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. Looking at the calendar today, my first thought was, what the hell happened to 2020? However, mix in equal parts of unemployment and a global pandemic, add a dash of political intrigue that has the world's attention, and you get your answer pretty quick. It feels like I went to bed in January, I woke up, and here we are at the end of November. Well, for today, I have Chapter 21 of Outcast on deck for you, and hey, no content warnings this time. Just some good old storytelling for you. As always, I'll be cross-posting this episode on the original Outcast podcast feed, and if you're listening to this there, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the new show at kickit.yo5.ca. So without further ado, let's get to Chapter 21 of Outcast. Outcast, a novel, written and read by Chris Fitzton. Chapter 21 More times than I could count, I was always glad the transports I used were autonomous vehicles. They had no drivers, instead relying on a sophisticated AI system to navigate the many roads in and around the Kerala Valley. Of course, the vehicles were monitored by a central dispatch network, but so long as there were no accidents to report, it was a sure bet that the locations of these vehicles were rarely checked. My mind fresh with what I'd learned, I was glad for the silence as I rode home. I was physically exhausted from everything that had happened. The last thing I really wanted at that moment was to talk to someone. Of course, given where I was heading, the only people I would end up talking to would be clansmen. And to say that would be awkward would be the understatement of the century. I could probably pull it off and not give away my identity, but the moment the transport stopped for me in the middle of nowhere, suspicion would arise. When I finally arrived at said stop, the moons were the only illumination I had to get home. This was fine for the open field next to the road, but once I crossed into the forest beyond, the moons would be little help. Bengalan night vision was good, but on those nights I wish I had a flashlight. The lack of a light source made for a slow, ponderous trip through the woods lest you smack your muzzle on a tree trunk. Having to be so careful, though, also helped me think of what I was going to say to Taki, assuming she was still there. My outburst had resembled something an abusive spouse would say or do to someone they supposedly loved. What I needed to say to her after would also sound like something a pakla like that would say. There really was no way to make what I had to say sound earnest, even though it was. I still felt that I didn't deserve her love, and that she deserved someone who'd never raised their voice to her. I felt no sense of indignation toward her for not believing me. I should have handled it better, but my mind at the time was so shattered, I was barely holding on as it was. If she weren't there, I'd understand. In truth, part of me was hoping it was so. 
That way, if we ever crossed paths again, it would hopefully be long after the memories weren't so fresh and we could talk with level heads. It would still be an uncomfortable conversation, but with tempers cooled, the words would come much more easily. At least, that's what I thought. To be fair, I was still young and more than a bit naive about such things. I began to smell wood smoke in the air. She was still there, and I really didn't know how to feel about that. It appeared that my night was far from over. Neither of us would be able to sleep until we hashed this out. I wondered if this was how relationships worked. I never remembered mother and father arguing in front of us, nor grandmother and grandfather. Perhaps they did it in private so as to not worry us children, or perhaps I was doing this all wrong, and by the morning I would be deservedly alone. I could see a flickering light in the window of the dwelling as I came into the clearing. That confirmed from where the wood smoke was coming. I sighed. I was getting tired of nights like this. They were few, to be sure, but leaving under bad circumstances only to return and having to face the music, well, it sucked. Still, standing outside wasn't going to solve the problem any faster. I held my breath as I opened the door, not sure what to expect. At worst, I expected to see Teki in that same state she'd been in when we left. That which greeted me when I stepped inside, though, was the last thing I ever would have expected. What the... Welcome home, grandson. Teki is safe. Grandfather and I sat at the table, opposite each other. His eyes bored into me to the point that I could barely look at him. His look wasn't one of anger, but disappointment. She is outside right now, and will remain there until I have decided what shall happen to her. He raised his hand before I could say anything. She told me everything that happened today, Dallin, and where you have been spending your evenings. Is it true, grandson? It is, I said meekly. All of it. I finally looked up at him, painful as it was to do so. I explained to Grandfather about Krasa and when he found me. I kept nothing hidden, even offering to show him where I buried the Temeki kittens just outside. His expression didn't change, but I thought I heard him taking a quick breath at that moment. I also told my side of what happened in the alley and the after-effects of it that led to him and I seated at the table. Finally, I told him of Krasa's error in my training and the consequences. That last part still felt like a convenient excuse, though. I may not have been in full control of myself, but it was still my voice she shied away from. It was my hands that had gripped her. It was my eyes that would haunt her. When I finished, Grandfather simply nodded. He sat back in his chair and steepled his fingers, a sign that he was thinking about everything Tiki and I had told him. So, he began, about Tiki's past, how did it make you feel when she told you? Angry, I replied quickly. But not at her. I didn't rush the second part. I didn't want it to sound like I was trying to excuse my anger. I was angry at Darrow and what he did to her. If you could go back to that alley, knowing that no one would ever suspect... Would you take his life, given the chance? 
I almost said yes immediately. Instead, I hesitated, thinking back to the vision and how it made me feel. The thought of ending his life still made me feel strange, but not in a bad way. The thought of slaying him and taking Taiki while bathing in his blood still played in my mind. You hesitate with your answer, Grandfather reminded me. I, I know, I said. Part of me wants to say yes, but, but you worry what I and others will think of you. Partially, I exhaled slowly. But I also wonder how I could live with myself, knowing I'd done such a thing. That I want to do so, doesn't that make me just as bad as them? The answer to that depends on one's perspective, Grandfather said. Though, when Crassus said that we were creatures of nature, he was right. We dress up our more primal instincts with conventions of law and institutions, but in the end, we defend those precious to us. And the more extreme the threat, the more extreme the response. So, I should have killed them? I didn't say that, he leaned on the table. However, sometimes death may be necessary especially if your opponent is intent on doing the same to you. Taki's assailants were looking to make an example out of her and you. They would have taken her and probably left you beaten and bloody in that alley. Among other things. But there will be others, Dallin. You lost your honor to violence. Is it not logical to assume that regaining it will be just as violent? They left you for dead. Should you meet them again, a sound beating may not stay their blades. You may very well have to condemn them to death so that you may live. It is not a desired outcome, but it may be necessary. I bowed my head. I had never given it much thought, but Grandfather was right. I should have died that night, but somehow I lived. The clans wanted me dead but instead father exiled me. Twice I'd escaped death, which was more than anyone I'd ever known. How many more times would my luck hold? How long could I truly avoid having to fight for my very life? Your father nearly killed a man once, grandfather said. It was an accident, but he was more than a little broken up over it. He wasn't much older than you when it happened, and I had to explain this very thing to him. Sometimes, to protect that which we hold dear, we must provide a permanent consequence. Easy to say when it's not your hands that go through with it. I only regretted saying that for a moment. You worry about what I and others will think of you. It wasn't a question. You fear that Teki will no longer love you or that when you return to the clan that we will keep our distance, knowing what you had to do. Wouldn't you? I countered. Wouldn't she? Knowing that these hands, I held them up, hands that held her in the night also snapped a neck? Would Mother trust me to play with Jenna, knowing that these same hands were covered in blood? Yes. The iron in his tone gave me pause. Your mother will not stop Jenna from running into your arms to welcome you home. Your siblings will cry rivers of tears that their brother is back. We will all roar to the patrons above in defiance for what we were forced to do to you. He reached across the table for my hand. Never doubt that people love you, Dallin. Never think that you are alone through this. 
Yes, you have a burden to bear, but we are all there as much as we can be to help you bear it. Until the day that you return to us, live your life. Live, laugh, and especially, grandson, love. I heard the door open when Grandfather uttered that last word. I turned and saw Tiki standing in the doorway. My chest tightened as I rose to approach her. Even though I saw her every day, I always seemed to forget how beautiful she was. I gingerly reached a hand for her face, and she didn't flinch. By the gods, she didn't flinch. She smiled widely and pressed her cheek into my hand. I stroked my thumb over her facial fur, feeling the wetness of a single shed tear. I'm sorry, I choked. She responded by crashing into me. We embraced each other tightly, and my heart leapt again as she purred softly. Perhaps I should be going, Grandfather said after clearing his throat. Tiki and I broke our embrace and stood away from the door, allowing him passage. The moment that door closed, though, we embraced again, more tenderly this time. As much as I wanted to talk it out and get this all behind us, my body was having none of it. Tiki smiled in understanding and helped me rebuild our bed of mats. It wasn't long before we were under the covers and holding each other as sleep overtook us. And once again, I left a mess for future Dallin to clean up. When my friend Risha Goddard was four years old, her parents bought her a stuffed tiger for Ascension Day. There wasn't really anything special about it. It was just one of the many plush animals you could buy during that time of year. However, Risha believed hers was special, the same as what all girls thought of their dolls. From the moment she opened that gift, Risha and Kitty were inseparable. She told me the only time she ever let it go was when she was changing her clothes or getting a bath. The funny thing is, she never really outgrew her love for that plush toy. For years, she carried Kitty around with her everywhere she went. When she couldn't hold him, she either placed him in her book bag or clipped him to her belt when she was playing. A lot of her friends and classmates teased her about her obsession with the toy, but she never paid it any mind. Perhaps it was jealousy or the simple need for a sibling to be cruel, but one night, Risha's older sister did the unthinkable. Back then, I didn't know Mara that well, but to call her a brat would be an enormous understatement. She would do anything she could to make Risha lose her temper, and what better way than to take away the one thing she held dearest above all else? During one of their usual sibling arguments, Mara ripped Kitty out of Risha's arms and, with a malicious grin, threw the plush toy into the fire that was going in their living room's fireplace. Risha's scream was deafening, and her parents were there in a matter of heartbeats. Her father quickly doused the fire while their mother did her best to console her. Sadly, there wasn't much left of Kitty after that. When the embers cooled and her father retrieved the toy, all but its head, one foreleg, and a bit of its body remained. Still, whatever remained, Risha gripped tightly, as though she could mend it by sheer force of will. She howled in grief as only an eight-year-old could and no amount of consoling could calm her down. For weeks after, 
Risha did nothing but stay in her room, holding on to the remains of Kitty. She didn't speak, barely ate, and when Mara tried to finish the toy off, Risha bit down on her arm hard enough to draw blood. At that point, her parents began to consider counseling for their youngest daughter. However, just before they were about to make the necessary arrangements, Risha seemed to snap out of her funk and return to normal. When Risha told me this story, she said that she realized something. As she held the remains of her friend in her hands, she realized that despite the damage, it was still Kitty. Burned and disfigured as it was, she still loved it regardless. Love doesn't require perfection. That was the lesson Risha learned, and it was one Taki and I wound up learning the hard way. In our own ways, we'd both lost our innocence to the world around us, but deep down, that didn't matter. We'd both been beaten, brutalized, and made to feel worthless in the eyes of others. But beneath the surface of our scarred and bruised souls, we were still worthy of things like respect and even love. The next morning, Taki and I had our talk. It was no candid affair. We sat at the table opposite each other, and for close to an hour I explained everything to her. I left nothing out, including what Krasa confessed and what Grandfather explained to me. All the while, my beloved cougar never took her eyes off me and kept her hand over mine, squeezing it reassuringly as I let it all out. In the end, we made a promise to each other. Come what may, we would never again doubt our love and devotion to one another. Whatever life handed to us from that moment on, we would face it side by side and hand in hand. We would always be there for each other, even when it felt like the entire galaxy was falling apart around us. Against the world we would stand united until the bitter end. Whenever that would be. Our lives changed yet again, and this time for the better. The weekend was a time of healing for Taki and I, and heal we did. After our talk, we headed to the downtown core of Kerala City just to get away from the dwelling and what it represented for us. We were careful to remain in more heavily populated areas in case one or more of Darrow's associates was feeling ambitious. Thankfully, no one paid any attention to a tiger and a cougar walking hand in hand through the many plazas that dotted the downtown core. The sky was bereft of clouds that day, and the plazas were a buzz of activity. Street vendors sold their wares from food to questionable souvenirs, while street performers drew small crowds with their antics. Like many others, Taki and I took our time watching some of them and enjoying what we saw. Some were musicians playing from either sheet music or memory, while some self-styled comedians tried to make us laugh. Most of their performances were amateurish at best, but they made for nice breaks in the day. There was this one busker, though. She was a bobcat, and she was playing a lively tune on her guitar. With a smirk, I pulled Taki close and danced with her in front of the small crowd. There was some applause at the end, and the bobcat thanked us for the compliment. Her open guitar case soon received a fair share of credits, for which I was grateful. Taki's ears were nearly glowing from her blush, but we both had smiles on our muzzles for the rest of the day. This emotional and spiritual high I was riding carried me through my return to my normal routine. 
I had to make a conscious effort to keep things level while at work, though there was some spillover. I was more engaging with my co-workers, and even listening to the odd exile story didn't bring me down that much. The crew I worked with noticed this upswing in my attitude, and they were grateful for it. We all agreed that shifts go faster with a smile on your muzzle. There was more I could have done, but I had to remind myself of what I was and what that meant. Darian Kane was little more than a decent hack in the Corrales City Registry. If someone dug too deeply for even an innocent reason, no amount of goodwill that I'd collected would save me. No, it was better to be a bit better than good employee for now. Krasa also changed in my eyes. Gone was most of that stoic, annoying, deadpan mood of his. In its place, I found someone who calmly instructed me through the finer points of theory, with less emphasis on sparring or other physical aspects. They were still there, but the focus shifted to precision and repetition. As I assumed each form under his instruction, he became very particular not only in its execution, but also my mindset as I assumed them. For a Lao Tari, the form was more than a display of physical prowess. The mind had to be committed to what was potentially to come. It was more than showing you were able to fight, but you also had to be willing in mind and spirit to take that step and translate form into motion. It sounded easy, but given what had happened in the alley and afterward, such a commission was intimidating to say the least. He encouraged me to take some time each day to practice my forms, transitions, and mindset, even on days when I wasn't training with him. I started going through my routines in the mornings before breakfast and repeated them before I went to bed. Taki became interested in what I was doing, and before long she was joining me. I was fascinated at how focused she became right after our first session. I asked her about it, and she told me that these exercises reminded her of her life in the tribes. Like the clans, Taki's former society had its own type of martial training. Many of the arts were more of a grappling type in nature, which I found to be rather effective when we did some light sparring. She would almost always get me on my back. And no, I never let her win. Well, not always. Krasa also suggested that I nurture a pastime other than training or work. I had an interest in music, and I remember Grandfather also nurturing that interest before all this happened. In fact, he encouraged all my siblings and I to at least try to play something. As it turned out, I had a bit of an affinity for the guitar and piano. I was by no means a virtuoso, but on the strings, I wasn't terrible. Well, not too terrible, anyway. I mentioned this to Krasa, and he was intrigued. He offered to help me purchase a guitar if I was struggling with the funds. I appreciated it, but I was more than able to afford it. Not having any utility obligations and only needing to keep Teki and I in food and other necessities helped me save a substantial amount from work. A guitar, purchased in the right place, would be more than feasible. I found a music store and bought a beginner-level acoustic guitar. The brand wasn't one of the more prestigious ones out there, but it would do for the time being. I'd buy a better one if I found myself improving and enjoying playing. I was a little apprehensive when I bought it, given that I hadn't played in over a year, 
I wondered how bad I would sound. Taki was there when I bought it, and she was at least accommodating with it my choice. She did, however, reserve the right to turn the guitar into kindling should my playing be a borderline disaster. With that note of encouragement, I waited until we returned to the dwelling before I tried. It was a rough start, but after a few attempts, I discovered that I'd remembered more than I thought. As for the effect it had on Taki, well, let's just say she had an incredible talent when it came to encouragement. With that kind of incentive, I'd be a rock star by next Ascension Day. Krasa said during my first retreat that it was in the outdoors where one would learn to be a Lautari. Up until my apparent breakdown, I never really thought of the differences in the changed location. In the mountains, the training was outside, but it was no different than in the training hall. However, that all changed with the next retreat. I spent much of my time in meditation and honing senses other than my eyes. I felt like I was pushing my very essence out of my body and taking in my surroundings without seeing them. I could smell the trees, hear everything from the insects chewing on leaves to the distant stream babbling away. My whiskers vibrated with the electricity in the air, letting me take in my surroundings with almost visual clarity. It felt ethereal and it also left me feeling a little sad for my race. That we could experience the world in such a beautiful way, yet I knew so many of my kind never would. Was this how enlightenment felt? Krasa had me bring my guitar to the retreat and encouraged me to play for him in the evenings. I did my best, and he didn't go running off into the woods, so I guessed I wasn't that bad. He asked me if playing reminded me of home, at which point he noted I was crying. I admitted that it did remind me of grandfather and what he used to say. He said I had chosen well then, because if it reminded me of home, then it would remind me of what I was fighting for. By the end of the retreat, I felt different, as though I'd grown somehow. Krasa once told me about the legacy of legend, and after those three days in the mountains, I began to feel it. There was something far more ancient about the Lautari than I ever suspected. I now felt that I was on the path of discovery and eventual revelation. I was going to be part of something far older than the clans or even the warlords. I would never learn it all, but I would certainly try. Perhaps this was enlightenment. If it were, I could understand why so many out there pursued it. Tiki noticed the change in me as the days progressed. I caught her several times stealing glances at me when she thought I wasn't looking. When I finally called her on it, she made no move to deny it, but instead commented on how peaceful I seemed. She said it was like I had finally grown into myself. I seemed complete, and she liked what she saw. At that moment, I did feel complete. More than before, I felt that my life once more had purpose, even if it was just to prolong this moment as much as I could. Alas, time is a cruel mistress, and as with all moments, mine was doomed to pass. Tomas visited us shortly after my last retreat. He had followed my instructions to the letter concerning my grandfather, who guided him to the dwelling. 
The reunion was a tearful one now that he didn't have to worry about his father seeing him. Introductions were made between he and Teki, and together we whiled away the day with stories from before the attack, and what he and the others had been up to since, and how much things had changed. On his second visit a few days later, he brought a surprise with him. A large Nanoflex screen. I was curious about this until he set it up and activated the screen's video conferencing app. My knees felt like they were going to give out as the image of two very familiar Black Panthers appeared. It was Max and Risha. They were still vacationing in Thanasia, so Tomas arranged with them for this little surprise. There were more tears as two more of my best friends learned that I was alive and well. I made all the necessary introductions, and Risha was excited to eventually meet Teki in the flesh. Since Shiana would no longer be a part of our little circle of friends, Risha felt relieved that she wouldn't be the only lady at the sausage party, her words. She also promised Teki several hours of gossip about me from my earlier years. At that, I wasn't sure if I wanted to thank Tomas for his gift or find some way to leave the country. In all seriousness, though, seeing them again, even though it was through a Nanoflex screen, did my heart a world of good. Tiki had many questions about my non-clan friends. The Baladins, Wallers, and Goddards were part of Kerala City's social elite, which had them moving in many of the same circles as the clans. This, of course, meant that the entire family, children included, often accompanied them to any clan functions, which was how I met all of them and we eventually became friends. I felt honored and humbled that despite all that had happened to me, those three were still determined to stick by me. However, should their association with me be discovered and relayed to the clans, there would be consequences, and not just light ones. There was no legal recourse the clans could use, but social pressure was something they specialized in. Given the high visibility of their families, my friends and this association could ruin them. I couldn't have that on my conscience, and I would have to let them know. There was no way they were going to suffer just because of my current status. I said nothing to Taki about this because I knew she would insist that I was being paranoid. However, Harris, Risha's father, was the editor-in-chief of the Kerala Register, the largest newsnet service in the Kerala Valley. Max's father, Anders Waller, was a well-known investment broker. As for Yusef, Teki already knew about his profession and his opinion on folks like us. They were all prominent members of non-clan society, and any kind of scandal could have grave consequences for them. Wanting them back in my life, but weighing that desire versus the risk kept me awake long after Teki closed her eyes. I needed to talk to someone about my fake identity. How solid was it? Cyrus once mentioned it wasn't enough to travel to another planet, but he assured me it was solid. If I was being honest with myself, solid wasn't a very reassuring description. There were other factors to consider as well, namely Max and Risha losing one tiger friend, only to gain another who looked and probably smelled similar. If someone suspected the truth, how far would they go? How deep was Darian Kane? Perhaps Grandfather knew and could offer some advice given my growing situation. 
Resolving to talk to him about it, my body finally relaxed and I closed my eyes. I would do anything to protect my friends, even if it meant keeping them at a distance. I couldn't bear the thought of someone hurting them because of me. And despite all the reassurances from everyone, I also couldn't bear the thought of what I'd do to those who dared to hurt my friends. What I did to protect Tiki was bad, but what about the others? What if the Shatlia came after them? What would the beast do to them? I didn't want to find out. And that's our story. I mentioned a few episodes back that I was looking to get into voiceover or voice acting, either as a side gig or maybe a full-time job if I could just break into it. I joined an organization that helps mentor people on the ins and outs of the voice industry, and earlier this week, I finally got my first audition off to someone not related to the podcast world. I've done a few auditions for podcasts and other small projects, but this was the first one I've done that could potentially lead to some serious income. Here's hoping. This upcoming week, we'll see some more intense writing on my part. As of this show, I have roughly six weeks of content left before Outcast is finished. Now, I have one or two short stories that I could use as filler, but I would just be delaying the inevitable. I have the outline, I have the plot, so all I need now is the filler. Add to this the need to re-record Outcast for release as an audiobook, and yeah, I'm going to be a busy guy for the next few weeks. But it'll be a good busy, so I'm looking forward to it. So I think I'll end it here for now. As always, thank you for tuning in, and if you'd like to leave me some feedback, you can email me at outcastnovel at gmail.com or leave an audio feedback via the SpeakPipe app at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information, please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. And to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.